Well, good morning again. We'll be continuing our series going through the book of Esther. We'll be in Esther chapter 4 this morning. It's printed for you on page 10 and 11 of your bulletin there. You know, just by way of reminder, I do this every once in a while, you know, a sermon is not a time for me to get up here and give you my opinion on the state of things. I mean, honestly, you shouldn't care what I think about anything. This is a time for us to come together and look at God's Word and dig in and see what God's Word says to us. And I come this morning, I just want to confess, I, I desperately need to hear God's grace this morning. And, and I hope you do too. I come hungry, wanting to see more of my beautiful Savior and give me strength for the journey of faithfulness this morning. And I hope you come that same way. So to that end, let's pray together and ask God to meet us in the sermon this morning. Father God, we thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in your word. That you have completely given yourself to us as much as you intend in the Bible, Father. And that you invite us to take up and read. So, Father, we pray that as we come now before your text, you would indeed open it up to us by your Spirit, that we may see the truth of who we are, the truth of who Jesus is, and the truth of what you are making us in him. Father, we pray that even this morning you would do your work of building your kingdom. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that I am passionate about is I really want to it, myself and to in, enable Christians to meaningfully engage the culture where it is for the gospel and, and to be able to demonstrate truth for the culture. It's so hard to be able to be relevant and faithful. It's really hard because it's so easy to find our natural comfort zone. Some of us are more comfortable. Let's just stick with relevancy and I don't want to stand too much on truth. Some of us are very good at standing on truth and we don't care about relevancy, but Jesus calls us to do both. And one of the reasons I wanted to walk through the book of Esther is Esther gives us wisdom for that journey. Esther is in a very similar situation to what we are. You know, there's, there's no burning bush. God doesn't come down in the book of Esther and say, do this, like he does in so many other Bible books. And he doesn't do that in our life either, right? When we say, God, what do you want from me? Talk to me. He's, he hands us a Bible, right? He, I've talked. Here you go. And so we have to discern how to get along in a difficult world. And Esther is a guidebook for understanding culture and understanding faithfulness, especially in a hostile, difficult culture, which we are in. And so since Esther is set in an empire, I, I use the word empire to kind of describe this background cultural stuff, not the government, not even the entertainment, but all the, the presuppositions and beliefs behind all of that is what I'm calling empire there. It's an imperial set of understandings that seek to dictate how we live. And you feel it, you know it. You may not be able to define it, but you can tell that these, there's these pressures to do this, don't do that, say this, don't say that. And sometimes it just gets enough, like, I don't want to do this anymore. That's empire. So, so far in the book of Esther, we've covered nine years in the first three chapters. At the end of chapter three, Haman created an edict that said, I'm going to kill all the Jews in the empire 11 months in the future. And this is a big deal problem because it's not just the Jews in Susa, the capital where we're focusing, but if you remember at this point in history, Palestine, Jerusalem are part of the Persian Empire. If this edict comes to pass, how will the promise that God has said that he will send a redeemer from this particular people, how will that promise come to pass 
if all of those people die right here. It's a big deal. The remaining five chapters slow down now to cover only those 11 months remaining in the book of Esther until this edict comes. It's all been building to this. The scene is set, the characters have been introduced, and the big problem has been unveiled. How in the world is this going to work for God's people? How is God going to fix this? And what I love about this chapter is we see that God can use scared, regretful people like Mordecai, like Esther, like us. And that gets us to our theme for today. Our theme is this. When the worst thing happened to us, Jesus fixed it. I need to hear that today, and I hope you do too. So let's jump in together. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 where we see a desperate Mordecai. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. We'll stop there. Oh no, keep going, sorry. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. Now this is God's word. I almost left off a couple of verses there. Sorry about that. So it starts out in verse 1, and Mordecai is prowling the streets, with a, it says, with a loud and bitter cry. It's literally in the Hebrew, he shrieked a great shriek, which is kind of funny until you remember what he's shrieking about. He's not happy. He is undone. But in verse 3, it's interesting that the rest of the Jews in the empire were weeping and lamenting. Mordecai is doing something more significant. Mordecai is doing something more intense. Because Mordecai kind of brought this about. Mordecai kind of started the process that ended in this edict. It's kind of his fault. Mordecai, Mordecai at this point is filled with regret. You ever been filled with regret? You ever been full of shame? He is ashamed at what he does. You ever been there? Yeah. You know what shame is, by the way? I heard someone say this one time, an RUF minister. This is stuck with me. I've got to say this very carefully. Shame is when you should all over yourself. Shame is when you should all over yourself. I should have done this. I should not have done that. And it just builds in the guilt and builds in the guilt. And we see here Mar- Mordecai is shoulding all over himself in, the, in Susa right now. He should have bowed to Haman. He should have not let his background tribalism cause him to do something foolish. He should have acted with more wisdom. And don't forget this. There's another should in there. If you read this in one setting, instead of going over, like a, uh, over the course of several weeks, if you read it in one setting just 90 seconds ago in the reading, Mordecai saved Xerxes' life. Xerxes owes Mordecai, big time. Mordecai has a get-out-of-jail-free card for all the Jews. He's like, you know, you, you signed this edict, I saved your life. But he can't play that chip now. 
Haman is the royal vizier commanded to bow down to him. Mordecai's failure to bow down to him in the eyes of empire is an act of treason and treachery. Mordecai has wasted his opportunity that he had to play this chip and save his people. He publicly disobeyed the king. He has no credibility now. And that's why he's in the depths of despair and regret. He could have fixed what he caused and now he can't. His stubborn pride brought this about. So he's humbling himself. He's wailing. He's publicly crying. Hey, boys and girls, I mean, here, boys and girls at home, I want you to imagine this. You're sitting in school, like maybe if the snow clears up tomorrow, you actually have to go back to school if you're in Chesterfield County. You're sitting in class, and there's this noise outside. All of a sudden, your class looks, and there is your dad in his underwear crying like a baby, holding up a big sign that says, Repent! The end is near. And one of your friends goes, Isn't that your dad? And of course, if you're like me, you're like, Nope. (laughs) Never seen that person before. It's embarrassing, right? And we often take that, all of us, and we put that back onto Esther. You know, as we read the Bible, we have to be careful not to project ourselves, not to project our customs back on to Scripture, onto these ancient people. Many of you have told me you've studied Esther before, you're currently studying it now. You're familiar with many of the resources out there. And so much of the material out there, if you'll allow me to be candid, castigates Esther and Mordecai because they don't act like us. Like, for instance, there's no mention of prayer in verses 1 through 3. That supposedly shows how superficial and assimilated they are. Esther, Mordecai, all the Jews in Persia, they don't pray. And since we've labeled them as superficial, we put that bias on them, now we look at Esther's response in verse 4. That obviously, she's just embarrassed. Wants to, she's so assimilated, she doesn't care. She just wants to cover it up, not to embarrass her. You know, part of my job is to help us all understand the Bible better and how to understand the Bible. And everything I just said is an example of what not to do. Okay, there's a couple of points here. One, prayer and fasting go together like light and heat. You don't always have to mention them together for them to be together, to assume they're happening at the same time. And second, if we had someone from ancient Susa here today talking to us, they would say, well, okay, we may have not mentioned prayer with all of our fasting, but um, when's the last time you fasted with all your praying? Yeah, we, we don't want to go there, do we? Let's not go there. See, instead of guessing, or instead of using the dreaded, well, this verse means to me method, we're supposed to let Scripture interpret Scripture to help us understand what's going on. And so I can tell you right now that the Jews in Persia were using their Bibles to guide them. I want to show you something real quick. Let's look together at Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. I have it for you on a slider so you can see it. This is from the book of Joel. God says this, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Joel was written before Esther. They had Joel in hand. Joel was written to the nation of Israel saying, if you guys don't repent, if you don't take seriously your faith, God is going to do what he said he would do, and he's going to bring in another nation. He's going to take you away. You're on this path. Turn and repent. And notice what is not mentioned. Joel never tells him to pray. 
But they're doing everything else that Joel says. They are looking at Joel 12 and 13 and they are saying, we've had a really bad situation, let's do what the manual says. They are following it. They had it, they believed it, they used it. And I'm belaboring this point because chapter 4 of Esther is pivotal for us to gain culture or to gain wisdom in what is a hostile culture. And maybe some of you might be upset for me to say that, but we are in a hostile culture. So I want to go back to Esther. Letting Scripture interpret Scripture. What's going on here? In verse 4, she's not embarrassed. She's not trying to cover Mordecai's shame. She's not trying to save face as queen. No. Remember from chapter 2, she can't leave. And in verse 2 right here, he can't come in because he's wearing sackcloth. And then in verse 4, she sees him, she hears him, and it says she's deeply distressed. That's not embarrassment. She is broken. Why is my adoptive dad so upset? She wants to know what's going on, so she sends him the proper attire so he can come in and talk to her. Mordecai, on the other hand, doesn't want to stop doing the, what Joel 2 says. He doesn't want to disobey Xerxes further, so he refuses. He's going to stay right there and mourn and wail and publicly repent. So it forces her to send out a trusted servant so they can kind of have a communication and see what's going on. Well, let's see what the message is that she gets from her servant. Verses 6 through 12. And I'll make sure I read the whole thing this time. Verses 6 through 12. <clears throat> Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Haphak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Haphak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. So Esther dispatches a messenger to find out what's wrong. Mordecai hands him the decree, and you can tell Mordecai is heavily connected to all the inner office gossip. He knows all the details of what happened, and he tells it to her. In fact, he's so desperate, notice in verse 8, he steps out of subject to a queen, bureaucrat to a queen, and steps into adoptive father, and he commands her to fix this. This is not a nice request. Mordecai is firm. He's like, fix it now. One of the things I was thinking of, boys and girls, about this is imagine that you're playing in your room and you hear this loud, tremendous crash. And all of a sudden you hear your mom yell, ah! And you go down there and there's this tremendous mess she's made. Something spilled. And she looks at you and she goes, you clean up my mess, young man. That's kind of what's going on here. Mordecai was in the perfect position to fix this, but he disqualified himself. So now he commands Esther to clean up my mess. Be a better Mordecai. And note the language of verse 8. Let's look at verse 8 together here. Notice what he says there in verse 8. The very end, he's like, explain to her, command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. We could actually translate beg his favor there as pray to him. 
and plead with him could be translated as inquire or seek after. This is the language of prayer. Now, I'm not saying that, see, there, she's obviously, he thinks uh, Xerxes is a god, so pray to him. No, he's showing how desperate he is. He's like, take all that emotion you would do when you're at your wit's end, and you take to God, say, Lord, you've got to fix this. Take all of that and go to Xerxes and say, Lord, you've got to fix this. It's a sign of desperation. And he commands her to put herself in danger to do it. And verse 11 shows us that, follow me here, she knows that he knows that he is asking her to risk her life. See, visitors had to be summoned to the presence of the king. You were not allowed just to pop in. In fact, it turns out from historical sources, only seven people in the entire Persian Empire had implicit permission to walk right in and talk to Xerxes. Only seven. Esther wasn't one of the seven. The first century Jewish historian Josephus tells us that around the Persian throne stood men with axes ready to decapitate anyone who came in unannounced. I mean, I've heard of CEOs having gatekeepers. That seems a little extreme. You know, very efficient. You're not going to have anybody interrupt your time, that's for sure. See, and Esther reminds Mordecai of this. She's like, uh, to go without being asked is death. And then she adds, it appears Xerxes has lost pleasure in me. I haven't seen him in over a month. We haven't been in the same room in over a month. And it would be a stretch for us to imagine that he's been sleeping alone. And then not only that, but again, as we try to make sure we recognize this really happened, these are real peoples, not just characters in a, his, in a, in a fiction. Don't forget the torture that Esther endured in, in chapter 2. That stuff doesn't just go away. If you've been abused, you know. Esther would have a very deep internal conflict in challenging any Persian rule. Will she do it? Will she step in the gap for her people? Well, let's find out. Verses 13 through 17. <clears throat> then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will, will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is God's word. So Mordecai comes to his adoptive daughter, and in her fear, her father responds with the truth. Verse 13 is not a threat. It's a reminder. Esther, you're dead if you do this. You're dead if you don't. And then in verse 14, Mordecai reminds her of the gospel. Now that is not preacherly hyperbole. That is not me violating what I just said a few minutes ago and reading back into the text. That is in there. Let's look at verse 14 together, and I'll show you how it's in here. Mordecai tells her, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether 
you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So if you remember last week, we looked at Genesis 3.15, where God comes right after the, the fall to the serpent and says, I'm going to bring somebody from the woman who's going to crush your head. And the rest of the Old Testament is the working out of that promise, Satan trying to kill the people of God to stop the head crusher from coming, and God being true to his promise. And one of the first things God did to be true to that promise is he went to a man named Abraham, and he took him out and said, look at the sky. He said, so too shall your descendants be. You you will have descendants that number as many as the sands of the the, uh, seashore, and in you all the nations will be blessed. Talking about that promise... The Christian pastor Paul in Galatians 3.8 says this, it says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. See, when Mordecai reminds Esther of the promise that God has made to his people, he's preaching the gospel to her. He basically says, Esther, God has promised to save his people. And right now, your plan A. But make no mistake, if you falter, he's got a plan B. But if he goes to plan B, you may perish. Your plan A. And in her fear, and in her desperation, Esther believes. In verse 16, her calling for a fast is a profound act of faith and trust. Mordecai broke the king's law out of hatred for a certain people, and here we see Esther will obey or will disobey the king's law to save her people. And so she asks those people to intercede for her because it's scary what she's about to do. And here's how I can say this is an act of faith and trust. Two, two reasons. One, most fasts were only during the daylight hours. I remember one time Nikki and I were on a trip to Charlotte, North Carolina, and we were eating. It was, it was in the kind of middle of summer, I believe, and we were eating at this restaurant, and these two guys were next to us, and they were eating. They kept, um, they were like right close. They kept drinking water and looking at their watches, and they were really close to us. And I said, "Is everything okay, guys? What's going on?" And they goes, "Oh, we're, we're Muslim, and it's Ramadan, and we're we're, wait, we're waiting waiting till official sundown so we can eat." And I was like, "Oh, I, I, I wasn't aware fasts work that way." So I was like, "That's interesting." I had a great conversation with them. And that's what most fasts were. They were sun up till sundown. You didn't eat, and then you could eat. Her calling for day and night is an intense fast. In fact, in different parts of the Old Testament, it's assumed that that kind of intense fasting is a fast of intercession. So again, prayer is assumed as part of this kind of fast. And here's the other part. There's deep, deep faith and trust on Esther's part. Remember the first time she was ever to encounter Xerxes? What did she have to go to? She had to go through a year of beauty preparations to be pretty enough, glossy enough, shiny enough, whatever you want to call it. Now, how is she going to look after three days? No air conditioning, no, no food, no water. She's going to be gaunt. She's not going to be radiant. She's acting in faith and specifically not relying on her beauty and charm. She's actually negating those things by fasting and saying, if this is going to happen, it's got to be from God. In other words, she responds to this incredible challenge of empire as I really hope I have the faith to do, but so often don't. 
I mean, there's no burning bush, there's no voice from heaven, there's no miraculous sign, there's no ace up her sleeve. Just like us, she doesn't know what God will do. She just takes that first step of fearful obedience. And she says, we could translate the Hebrew, and I think we should translate the Hebrew, not if, but when I perish, I perish. She she walked in there expecting to be killed. Now, I want to step back and examine something real quick. Verses... 14 through 16 would be the natural place for the writer to mention God, to bring in God and God comforted her or something, right? But he, he just or she won't, just won't engage in God talk. And there's something, there's something to that. And that something is what's happening in their history and what's happening in the text. And that gives us wisdom for today. Here's what's happening in history. And I, I forgot this until, I, until it just kind of dawned on me. For the Jews at this point, the age of theocracy is over. The age of there being no separation of church and state is over. Israel's gone. The king is gone. Nehemiah's kind of there rebuilding the temple, but it's under Persian law. There is no independent Israel anymore. That age is over. So God's people will never be an independent nation again. And we can say that looking back over the course of history. It's over. Once Babylon takes over and then Persia, they're never independent again. And then in the text, both Esther and Mordecai, they're not talking directly to each other, remember? They're going through a a Persian intermediary, a pagan eunuch. So they're talking in a way that he will understand and won't freak out. In other words... Because of their new historical reality, the writer is modeling, I believe, how to be wise in your speech with people who are in empire. I mean, mean, when we were church planting in Boston, we had to learn this. We had to unlearn a lot of Christian jargon we would use. We had to unlearn a lot of kind of just assumptions. I remember the first sermon I preached and I actually said the word justification. And afterwards, someone we'd been talking to, a a non-Christian, was like, "Um, what's justification? I'm using shop talk. People aren't, you don't know, right? It's that kind of idea. So we, we, so we, we started shedding all this Christian external stuff. Now, does that mean that we abandon our faith? I know some of you are like, maybe. But like, I'll give you an example. Like we would have people over for dinner, neighbors that we were building relationships with, and you, know, you get to know each other before dinner, then you, you sit down for the meal, and usually my little speech would go something like this. Like, we're a Christian family. It, it's our family culture to pray before meals. You don't have to join us, but would you mind if we prayed? Just acknowledging there's a difference here and speaking in wisdom instead of assuming certain categories. That's what's going on here in Esther 4. The new reality for God's Old Testament people at this point and the current reality for God's New Testament people is an example of how we should talk to our neighbors. We no longer live in a theocracy. We no longer live... Where the people who share our faith are always in charge, right? We're in a different world, and Esther and Mordecai give us an example on how to speak wisely when people don't share your base convictions. Not giving up your base convictions, but how to communicate well. Remember, it was said to me this way, this has stuck with me, that when you really want to love somebody, you choose to communicate in a way that they will hear instead of demanding that they listen in the way you talk. Isn't that interesting? That stuck with me. It's like, ooh, I do that. I totally like, you know, I'm going to talk my way. You should understand me. Like, no, if 
I'm going to love, as Jesus called me to love, that I have to communicate so you can hear instead of demanding you listen in a way that I speak. And that's, I think we have a, an example here in Esther and Mordecai using their speech in such a way that their messenger will understand and God's people will understand. So we've gone through this. We're at the end of the text. What's going to happen We've looked at a desperate Mordecai. We've looked at a better Mordecai. We've looked at a desperate Esther. And I want to end with looking at a better Esther. You know, I've said before at the end of every one of these chapters, God is not mentioned. It's a questionable book in the, New, in the Old Testament canon. It's controversial. Martin Luther wanted to take it out, actually. Didn't like it at all. But Jesus himself said in Luke 24 that all of the Bible is about him, Jesus. And so we have the right, in fact, we have the duty, it's faithful Christian interpretation to go to a text like this and find Jesus in here. And so where do we find Jesus? We find Jesus as the better Esther. That Mordecai came to Esther because God's people needed someone who pleased the king, someone who was in whom the king delighted, who was both a Jew and Persian, who could go under that curse of death and make intercession for her people. And that person was Esther. She may deliver the Jews, but she's powerless to help us. We don't need freedom from Xerxes right now, do we? See, Mordecai was merely following in the footsteps of Adam because Adam led himself and all of his people into the curse of death through his disobedience. And we needed someone to deliver us from that curse of death, someone in whom the king delighted, someone who was both one of us and part of the royal family. Because the Lord would not let Adam or us into his presence. We needed someone who pleased the Lord, who could go under that curse of death and make intercession for us. We needed a better Adam. And that person is Jesus. Esther had to come trembling to Xerxes' throne, but Jesus left his throne for trembling sinners. Esther didn't know the outcome, and so she looked at this situation and said, when I perish, I perish. Jesus Christ looked at the certainty of the cross and said, I will perish for them. Now, if you're here or listening and you're not a Christian, I want you to look again at Mordecai. He's filled with regret. He's filled with shame from past failure and present pain, and he can only be freed by the work of another. Are you filled with shame? Are you filled with regret? Do you dwell on past failure, present pain? Are you exhausted from trying to fix your own life? Rest in the work of another. Place your faith and trust in Jesus and let him fix you. And Christians here today, in your desperation, in your need, don't forget that you are united to Jesus by faith. You can go right up to the great king without any fear. Not because he's no longer high and holy and lofty and fierce. No, but because Jesus has made him safe for you. In Jesus, the great king is your dad. And you can go right up. Let this story of Esther lead you to Jesus. We all stand under the curse of death. The only salvation, the only deliverance is by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray together.
My gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this book of Esther. Lord, we thank you for how you're showing us the gospel kind of obliquely on the side, Lord, in a way that encourages us. Father, we do live in a world that doesn't want us to share our faith. It doesn't want us to be too religious, Lord. And I pray that you would give us the wisdom to speak in a way that they will hear, but the courage to stand on truth that they don't want to receive. Would you help us to be that salt and light you call us to be? Father, we pray that you would build us up in the gospel, that we would know more of the union we have with Christ, more of how we can sit in your lap and call you dad. And then from that place of strength, Lord, would you give us the wisdom and the zeal to spread your kingdom, Father to be burdened by the fact that so many of our neighbors don't honor you as Lord and it breaks our hearts because you deserve to be honored. Lord, would you use us to spread your kingdom, Father? We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.